welcome to Fiction Predictions. I'm Sam Haysom. And I'm Nikolai Nikolov. The day has finally come. Um, okay. And, and I'm going to try to tackle one of the most popular dystopian novels ever written. 1984, you're right, man. That's a typo. Orwell's here now. He's living large. We had no names, man. No names. But 1984 is also overused, um, especially in the world that we live in today. Nineteen eighty-four has penetrated popular culture to such an extent that it's almost ubiquitous. On January twenty-fourth, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why nineteen eighty-four won't be like nineteen eighty-four. There's dozens of films and TV shows and songs that experiment with the idea of Orwell's totalitarian society. Back in 2017, which now seems like a century ago, 1984 skyrocketed to number one on Amazon. After what was an avalanche of false statements made by President Trump's administration about the size of the crowd that formed during his inauguration. No, you did not. You did not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. What you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains: alternative facts, alternative facts for the five facts. Oh, see, this is interesting because I remember when we were first talking about the podcast and initially, I, I remember initially we weren't sure whether or not we were going to actually talk about 1984 because it almost feels, yeah, like you said, overused or a bit of a cliche in terms of this idea of fiction predicting real life. And at first we were we were thinking maybe we should shy away from it or, or not shy away from it, but just try and focus on lesser known examples. So I'm interested to see what your reasoning is for picking for picking this to explore. I initially had a very big problem with that because when I started looking into 1984 and looking at angles, there are so many articles out there that have a, a variation of the headline, you know, did 1984 predict the future? Or is, is it the right time to read 1984 now? Right. So whereas other examples, like when you talked about the Panopticon, which I, I haven't read many articles about, I'd never heard of, this is, is completely the other end of the, uh, the spectrum. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do this episode. It's not like any other episodes that we've done so far. Okay, brilliant. So, Orwell's 1984 turned 70 this year, and in light of that anniversary, I prepared a two-part episode for you, Sam. So, in this first part, I'll dive into the novel itself, and I'll look at the roadmap that Orwell describes to see just how prescient the words in those pages are when it comes to... when it comes to today. For that, I've enlisted the help of Professor Jean Seaton, who's the director of the Orwell Foundation, and she's also a professor in media history here in the UK. And what I wanted to focus on is the place Orwell leaves in 1984 for something that very few people 
seem to recognize, and it's the place he reserves for hope, specifically for hope for a better future. Brilliant. I mean, it it feels like if there was ever any book or fictional example that we would stretch over two parts, 1984 is going to be the one, because like you said, there's been so much written about it, so many opinions that, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to analyze. It's one of these things that everybody knows about 1984, and everybody thinks they know what the book is about, but very few people actually know. When it it comes to the nature of the totalitarian regime, very few people understand really which are the aspects that really apply to the day. So the second part of the episode, I'm, I'm going to interview three people. Um, so oh, I'm interviewing you're me. You, are you putting me to shame? Like I interviewed my friend Dave. About Hi, Dave. How he found... Hi, Dave. <laughs> I'm glad he's made it onto two podcasts already. But yeah, I interviewed him about the book he'd found down the, the you know, the charity shop or wherever it was. And you brought you brought four people. You set a very high standard with the Titan. Um, but well, I mean, I, it's just I think really to do 1984 justice we 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 need voices of authority because in a post truth world when we're talking about 1984 we really need to have people who know what they're talking about to to actually really come to terms with which parts are real and which parts are are just more allegorical your name is the brother you say that you are all right sam are you ready to kick off this first part of the episode Oh, yeah. I'm going to need to bring Dave back in the future, aren't I? Hi, Dave. <laughs> Your name is Big Brother. Okay. Here we go. Our 1984 story starts with Professor Seaton here in London. Yes, hi. How can I help? How can I help? She's a professor in media history. Which means that I've spent most of my adult life in very precious things called archives, where humans have saved that which they think is important, um, and out of which, without which, we we really do disappear. We don't know who we are or what we are without archives, so I'm very anxious about the state of archives. Jean is also the director of the Oral Foundation, okay. which offers prizes for writing and reporting. But it also does great events like dramatizing and reading 1984 live and generally tries to make everybody think hard about difficult things. So 1984 live was the first time Orwell's book was read aloud cover to cover. How could he communicate with the future? It took exactly 11 hours and 13 minutes. Either the future would resemble the present, in which case it would not listen to him or it'd be different from it and his predictions would be meaningless. And it was read by 59 people, some of whom were great historians, some of whom you've never heard of, but every single one had played a key role in defending freedom of speech, some of whom, like Richard Blair, Orwell's adopted son, had a particular relationship to the text. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made, above the level of a very low whisper, would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision, which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. And Orwell's grandson and great-grandson also read. And a thick, quarto-sized book with a red back and a marbled cover. 
For some reason, the telescreen in the living room was in an unusual position. Instead of being placed, as normal, in the end wall where it could command the whole room, it was in the longer wall opposite the window, where to one side of it there was a shallow alcove, which Winston was now sitting. Even with nothing written in it, it was a compromising possession. Other participants included one of my favorite musicians, Billy Bragg. It's a little chunk of history that they've forgotten to alter. It's a message from a hundred years ago, if one knew how to read it. As well as outstanding British directors like Ken Loke. At all times, the party's in possession of absolute truth. And Phyllida Lloyd, who directed Mamma Mia. The arithmetical problems raised, for instance, by such a statement as two and two make five were beyond his intellectual grasp. So we put together... Every single speaker is there for a reason. And we did it in Senate House, which is a large 1930s, rather grand, modernist building. And it also was used as the Ministry of Truth in the 1984 film. So we did it in a very historically accurate and resonant place. And they did this in June 2017, on the anniversary of 1984, just after Trump and Brexit. So... It felt particularly prescient. After Trump had been elected, it was a very sort of politically fragile moment. And of course, politics in all over Europe and possibly all over the world have become more fraught since then. People suddenly seem to remember Orwell. They seem to remember 1984. What's really unsettling about Orwell very, very useful if you happen to be running the Orwell Foundation, is his capacity to think very clearly into enduring contemporary experience. And there's something about Orwell when he's writing 1984 being pressed by all of his experiences, all of the politics, all of the social understanding of authoritarianism and propaganda and the Second World War, but he's also pressed by his own vivid apprehension of his own lack of time. He's dying. That produces this not very long book in which every sentence counts. So it's a book that reads like a warning for future generations, a handbook with like instructions for difficult times, let's say. And Jean says it's time to once again pay close attention to it. You know, Sales of Orwell rocketed after Trump was elected. I went to, you know, anywhere you go where there is oppression, Orwell becomes some is that. Or the pirated distribution of literature banned by the state, uh, and specifically in former socialist countries in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. He feels, he's always felt like a really good warning to us in what we had previously thought were relatively safe social democracies, but don't feel so safe now. He feels even better as a warning. But like we said, 1984 was written seven decades ago. So it was first and foremost a warning in terms of what Orwell saw developing in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, the big isms of the 20th century. So what you're listening to right now is actually a recording of my dad, and he's talking about a letter he was asked to sign, distancing himself from his parents, who were deemed enemies of the people by the Bulgarian socialist regime. Today, we're reminded of 1984 once again, 
because of the politically fragile moment we find ourselves in. The party says the earth is flat. There is the rise of far-right xenophobic political movements all across the world, but there's also the more complicated fragmentation of facts and truth in a digital age of social media. Stupidity was as necessary as intelligence and as difficult to attain. And one wonders whether the social media in which people voluntarily give away constructs of themselves um, and the algorithms that feel to me the most sinister, the algorithms which drive trivial things like you know, offering you more music like you already like on Spotify or um, offering you garden products because you have bought one, but more profoundly drive you into silos of like-minded opinion. And if you look at attitudes towards vaccination, I mean, never in my wildest dreams would I believe that people could turn against vaccination. But those algorithms maybe feel as if they, they don't feel separate from you. They just feel as if they're telling you more about the you that you are. So it's this, the commodification of the unintended gesture and the feedback of that into real action is very Orwellian. And the first thing Winston Smith does, the first transgressive thing he does is buy himself a diary to compose himself. The thing that he was about to do was to open a diary. It was not illegal. Nothing was illegal since there was no longer any laws. But it was detected, it was reasonably certain that he would be punished by death or at least 25 years in a forced labour camp. To mark the paper was a decisive act and a small clumsy letters he wrote, April the 4th, 1984. For whom, it suddenly occurred to him, he wondered, was he writing a diary for the future, for the unborn? His mind hovered for a moment around the doubtful date on the page. That notion of transgression is what I think is the most prescient part of Orwell's prediction of the future. Not the surveillance, or the torture, or the exploration into dictatorships. Winston could see the whiskers and the yellow teeth. Again, the black panic took hold of him. He was it's that sliver of hope that he offers through 1984. Something really very few people seem to notice. And it's perhaps because it's buried right at the end. What I'd say about 1984 is nobody ever reads the last chapter. Nobody ever reads the last chapter because it's a very boring report of Comsoc. But that last chapter puts the entire book into perspective. Oddly makes it hopeful. So the last chapter is other bureaucratic report on the narrative document you've just read by Winston Smith. And from that you learn that the Winston Smith narrative has survived. It survived in the archives. It actually lived. That's to say Winston's testimony has not been obliterated. And that's an odd... No, nobody ever reads that last chapter because it's quite boring. But actually, it's almost the most important one because it gives you a... gives you a... It, it, it reframes everything you've read before into something that survived, not something that's disappeared. History or narrative, they're preserved. The greatest horror in Orwell's dystopia is the destruction of meaning, a destruction that's carried out by hollowing out language. 
It's a horror we face today in a post-truth alternative facts world. What we are witnessing here is an added new chapter to George Orwell's 1984, where up is down and down is up. And sometimes now it happens in the same day. And even though it's tempting to label almost everything around us as Orwellian. But to say this was simply for the children's protection does seem kind of Orwellian when you consider what subsequently was done to them. It's wise that we frame it according to Orwell's original warnings. I think I'm going to go back and reread George Orwell. I mean, this kind of uh, doublespeak makes no sense at all. If Orwell teaches us anything, he, he teaches us to make subtle, important distinctions using our language to name things accurately. So you have to reserve your words and use them sparingly. Otherwise, as Orwell says, you don't have the words to think with. And so 1984 is kind of special. It's one of those really great books that survives, like Winston's Diary, because it sort of anticipates the truth and stories that make us human. So I think that novels from the past both tell you about the past, but they really great ones tell you human truth, great poetry and great novels tell you terrible, uncomfortable things about yourself. And we all need more of that. And they tell you the pattern of good feelings. They, they, they offer you and they take you into the minds of other people. I have always believed in the power of fiction to tell us truths that are of a different order. He gazed up at the enormous face. Forty years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. Oh, stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-scented tears trickled down the side of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. So Sam, just to start this sort of final discussion of 1984 and what we discuss with Jean. I find it very striking that the thing that she found, I guess, the most important part yet, the, the part that remains the most hidden is, is, the, is the sense of hope that is left in 1984. Um, she talks about how, you know, the last chapter, the really boring sort of bureaucratic report that nobody reads actually has hints that in a future world, Winston's diary and his sense of, you know, self is is uh, maintained, right. is kept. And I think that's a reading of 1984 and a sense of foreshadowing that is rarely acknowledged. We always talk about Big Brother surveillance, you know, uh, newspeak and doublespeak and all these things, but we rarely talk about um, the human resilience in cases of, you know, totalitarian domination. And I just wanted to sort of bring this up and, and have your take a little bit. Okay, so you're saying that um, often in, yeah, in all the talk of, of the sort of depressing side of 1984 and all the grim reflection that we see in contemporary society, all these examples, what's often lost in that is the kind of like glimmer of hope 
in this idea that uh, Winston's narrative is not lost. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and it it, it is very true, isn't it? Like it's no matter how many sort of un, unpleasant examples you see in different countries or, you know, seemingly unpleasant to us uh, as sort of outsiders look, looking at them um, from our lens, no matter how many examples there are, there are always stories. Um, maybe they don't get as much attention, but there's always various narratives of hope and resistance. Although Orwell obviously predicted a lot of a lot of things to do with technology and to do with, with politics, yeah, maybe maybe that sort of message of human resistance is is also a prediction in itself. The thing that that I always think about is, you know, um, stories that I hear from my parents of of how things were under under communism. The reason why it collapsed in eighty nine and in ninety one in the Soviet Union in such a spectacularly unspectacular way, it just seemed to implode from the outside in, and people were dumbfounded yet somehow expected it is because this entire system was hollow right it was the only reason why it existed is the sheer force physical force and ideational force that it constantly sort of pressed upon its people but unlike the orwellian narrative which made the reader believe that everybody was sort of brainwashed two plus two equals you know, the majority of the population was made docile by this totalitarian regime. They can't get inside you, she had said, but they could get inside you. Despite the the incredible monstrosity that totalitarian regimes are, what I know for a fact, you know, even from my own research when I was doing the, my PhD, is that from the Soviet Union to Eastern European countries, um, regular people manage to establish a sense of normality under that regime. Um, and whether it's within their own house, where they sort of like sealed themselves off from the gaze of the regime, or whether for through certain uses of irony or barter, they, they found different ways to, to constantly criticize, negate, uh, make fun of this regime, right? So whereas, you know, the, the fear in 1984 is that all human ingenuity, all human sort of um, independent thought, uh, the desire for freedom is lost by the sheer force of the of the regime above. What what I know for a fact is that the, the human spirit is much harder to break, and I think that's why it's so important that Jean stressed this idea of hope, right? Because whenever we bring up Orwellian in our contemporary society today, we always fear the worst. You know, when we talk about Trump, when we talk about China, when we talk about Russia, we fear the the worst in terms of regressing back into these totalitarian regimes. Right. But we always underestimate the power, um, uh, you know, the, of the human spirit, of the desire to be free. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, exactly what you said, like whether it's like you were saying, like whether it's someone in their own home creating a sense of normalcy, it's, it, you know, it's like Winston in 1984 with his diary, isn't it? Like he, he, that's one of his acts of rebellion is writing this diary and kind of, you know, keeping his own sort of carving out his own private space in this chaos. And, you know, even in real world examples, like uh, in China in, with Xi Jinping, uh, there were there were these examples, for instance, of he was compared to Winnie the Pooh, the cartoon character, and 
it became almost a meme and then China banned images of Winnie the Pooh but there were still examples of people trying to kind of yeah trying to use use images subtly like on the internet or in photos um, as a kind of form of rebellion so I think you're definitely onto something with this idea of people carving out a kind of sense of normalcy in, in a private space or using coded kind of language but one thing I did want to ask you about that really stuck out to me and is something I don't feel I know enough about. Back in the introduction, when you were saying your parents grew up in a totalitarian regime, you know, as a fairly ignorant um, person from the UK, I don't, I don't feel I know much about Bulgaria's history. Um, and perhaps, you know, some people listening might not know. So what, what exactly, yeah, what exactly was the situation um, for your parents the way that the Soviet-style totalitarian regimes are spread through Eastern Europe in, in very simple terms is that after the Second World War, the, the, the Red Army, the Russian Army, um, stayed in Eastern Europe, which was sort of supposed to be a buffer from any future attacks against the Soviet Union. And Bulgaria was sort of the closest to the Soviet Union. Um, in terms of how, you know, how brutal the repression was in the beginning, because a lot of people were opposed to, to the sort of the new, newly enforced um, communist regime. There were, you know, a lot of people died. Uh, there were these so-called national courts where thousands of people, mostly from, you know, aristocratic or sort of uh, supposedly bourgeois backgrounds were sentenced to death. So in a matter of 20 years, um, you know, Bulgaria, which was predominantly rural, um, most people worked on, you know, in, in, in the agricultural sector in a matter of 20 years with collectivization, which means the nationalization of land, uh, Bulgaria becomes predominantly urban. So most people work in industry and live in the city and it's basically the entire country is transformed. And those that support the regime benefit significantly. So if you were, you know, um, born in a small village and you supported the regime, you would be, you would easily find a way to rise up in the ranks. But if you were against the regime, like my fa father's parents, you know, they were, um, my father, my, my grandfather essentially was studying to be a doctor and, and he had to sign a letter admitting that he supports the communist cause and he refused to sign it and he was expelled. And then he and my grandma and my father, um, were, you know, they faced a knowing and persistent and, and, and very destructive kind of persecution where like they wouldn't be allowed to move town. So when they were looking for jobs, they wouldn't be allowed to just go to Sofia. When they moved to Sofia because they were a so-called enemy of the people, they wouldn't be able to find places to live or, or they will be, you know, evicted and they'll have to find new places. When my father had to go um, and do his military service, he did it with like former, let's say, prisoners who went to jail before they had chance to go to the you know, to go and do their army service or, you know, other sort of sons and daughters of enemies of the people. And, he, you know, when, for example, when he was um, at university, he was, he was, uh, or when he um, finished his university and he started working in, in the Ethnographic Institute, he could only become, um, you know, he can only get his PhD if, if he pledged allegiance to the party, which he never did. Okay. So really, and, you know, like, obviously we've been talking about 1984, but that is, you know, the way Winston behaves in the book, that kind of seed of rebellion and just, you know, even if you can find small or large ways to rebel, whatever it is, that is, that's, you know, very similar to what happened in your family. And that's the thing that I alluded to in the beginning is that 
1984 as, as a bleak dystopian future of an all-powerful state is useless because that's not what we face in real life. The, the dangers, the authoritarian impulses that we face are much more um, almost Insidious. invisible. Yeah, and, and banal, right? Because they're everywhere and it's, it's because we don't recognize how they limit our freedom and how they have impact on us that we allow them to grow and to fester. Um, and it's it's that sense, that is the reason why I think the the notion of hope is so important because it's not a battle lost. It's not like the battle like we talked about in episode four against nature and the Titanic and the metaphor for the human feet to go beyond what we perhaps ought to. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting point, and I guess it, it kind of leads on to the next question, which is obviously the last question we, we normally ask in every podcast and do we think 1984 is a good or perhaps a better way to say it would be accurate predictor based on your interview with gene i think we should wait until next week um in that episode i'll present three specific examples of the way that 1984 diagnoses different parts of the world that we live in today i think for for today um what's important to say is that Orwell is an incredibly insightful and intelligent human being who wanted to warn future generations of, of the dangers and atrocities that he witnessed himself that he thought would reoccur again. And I think that is essentially what 1984 is. And I think that's why we need it today when we're coming to terms with, with certain um, authoritarian um, impulses in different parts of the world. Okay, guys, that's uh, it for week one. I'll be back next week with part two of 1984 and 2019. Um, thanks so much for tuning in and thanks to um, Gene and to the Orwell Foundation. Well, I really enjoyed it. And thanks, Sam, for listening. Anytime. That's what I'm here for. Great. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye. Fiction Predictions is a Mashable podcast created by Nikolai Nikolov and Sam Hasem. The theme song was composed by Kasperg. The artwork was designed by Bob Algerin. And this episode was edited by me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.